Welcome to Corestruction, the podcast of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. I'm your host, Brandon Parrish. We are at the Severe Weather Expo here at Woodland Hills Mall in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm here with Taft Price. Taft, you're a weather forecaster with the, with the Corps here, working in our hydraulics and hydrology uh, branch. Tell me about, tell us about your background. For sure. Uh, born and raised in Oklahoma, so obviously weather was top of mind a lot of times. And uh, when I was in high school, a tornado had hit our house. I had just made it back from a baseball tournament about 30 minutes before. Tornado hit our house in the middle of the night. And it wasn't really that strong of a storm. And I said to my dad, after our roof blew off, I said, why did that little storm produce a tornado and other big storms I've seen? So it really got me fascinated with meteorology and weather. And uh, so obviously the logical choice was to go to University of Oklahoma, got my meteorology degree there. And while I was there, not only did I get to do some of that crazy storm chasing, you know, with some of the more experienced people, but uh, also interned in Oklahoma City at a TV station there. And that allowed me to get into a TV station here as an intern when I moved to Tulsa. And then everything just kind of built up from there, from intern to getting a weekend job and then spending over 25 years in TV before coming to the core a little over four years ago. Tell me, tell me what that is like being chasing a tornado. What does that feel like? Uh, I usually tell everybody it's pretty much every emotion rolled into one. That a lot of times when you're chasing, the first four, five, six hours is driving and you're seeing a blue sky, not much going on. And you drive for a couple hundred miles just hoping that something is going to happen close enough to you to be able to see. And there were several times we would go out and see nothing but blue skies and ended up playing basketball on a court at 8 o'clock at night in southwest Oklahoma because nothing happened. <laughs> but then there were times when you would actually see storms develop and you would actually chase tornadoes. And that's when it was every emotion rolled into one. You're in complete awe of how strong these storms are that produce tornadoes. You're a little bit nervous. And at the same time, you have to keep safety in mind. Even though you see a tornado right there, lightning is probably more dangerous to a storm chaser than a tornado because a lot of times you're out there where it's flat. Very few trees, especially Western Oklahoma. So you always have to know that lightning is, is the potential for it to happen. And you don't know when that's gonna strike. So it's always in the back of your mind that seeing a tornado, but there are other things I gotta worry about as well. And lightning is obviously one of them, hydroplaning, several other things. So it's not a game when you're out there. You really have to be focused and safe at what you're doing because it, it can be very dangerous if you're, if you're doing the wrong thing. Would you describe people who, who work in that area in the, or who, who, who work in weather, who, who try out the storm chasing thing? I, I assume it's not for the faint of heart, but w would you say they're, it's like one part maverick and the other part scientist? Probably so. You know, I think early on, uh, when I started chasing in 1990, it was the first storm chase, uh, and I went storm chasing with a guy that was in my, one of my meteorology classes, and uh, he was from East Texas, and we were up around Enid, and they had just issued a tornado warning, we were very close to it, and it started to hail, and he, he wanted me to pull off so he could get out and pick up hail, because he had never seen it before. That's kind of the, the issue, is you have some that are a novice at it, and they really don't know what they're doing. They know the excitement's gonna be there, but they don't know the dangers and what it really takes. So you need experienced people. And after that day, I made sure that when I went out for the next year or two, I went out with experienced chasers with the TV stations. But, you know, there is a lot of excitement to it. There's a lot of interest into it. 
Uh, but a lot of times that interest could be, I need to get a little bit closer to that storm, a little bit closer, and sometimes you can get too close. And I think that's that's the key is that people are excited about the the uh, the amazement of weather, but at the same time they kind of lose sight of some of the safety issues that, that you also have to put into it. So yeah, storm chasers can be a different breed. They really can because you have to have the want to drive hours and hours and maybe see nothing, but at the same time you got to have the love for weather to understand why this kind of stuff is happening. When you uh, when you decided to make the jump to the Corps of Engineers, what was uh, behind that decision? Well, I think 25 years in TV, and I and I really loved it. I loved being on air, not only to talk about the weather, but also I always enjoyed trying to keep people safe. That was my goal. If we could get through a severe weather event and everybody was safe, whether we had tornadoes or not, it meant something to me, and it was important to me to, to try to keep people as safe as possible. And after 25 years, I felt it was kind of a time where my kids were moving out and they were going to college and, and starting their own careers and lives. That I, it was ready for me to be able to spend more time with my wife. And years and years of working weekends, my wife was off, I would work weekends. She would work Thursdays and Fridays, I would be off. So the jump for me was, was for that reason, spend more time with my wife and to try something new, but at the same time, the core has a lot of parallels with TV. I'm still helping the public. I still get to talk to the public. I still get to do weather and talk meteorology. It's just a little bit different. I don't talk about rain falling from the sky. I do a little bit more. Once that water hits the ground, what does it do to our lakes? That's what I do now. So that change, it was a perfect time for me. It, it couldn't have been a better time. And four plus years now at the core, and I couldn't be happier with that change. When you came to work for the Corps and you kind of were in, indoctrinated, so to speak, into the, the way we do things in the Corps of Engineers, um, and I say indoctrinated with the utmost respect for that process, but you're, you're given information that maybe the average person and probably to some degree or another, even uh, forecasters, don't necessarily have directly and that is you know how we make our release decisions and, and how we do things was that a surprise for you or did that take did that take some convincing for you coming from did it did it change your mind about anything or were, were you already pretty much well i was pretty fascinated when i came over to try to understand why they release at certain times why do they release so much and not at others and it was only three months after i started there that we had the floods of 2019 so I had to hit the ground running and to be able to watch those that were more experienced than me, how they forecasted, where the rain had fallen, what it was going to do to the lakes, what level it was going to be, how much we needed to release, what that was going to do downstream. I learned a lot in that first three, four, five months that made me have even more respect for what the Corps does and what our forecasters and our water managers have to do because there were times when we're talking inches three, four, five inches of a lake level makes a big difference. And to watch how my teammates did that and I sit back and watch them do that, it was amazing to me and it really drove me to want to understand more about why we do what we do. Uh, and now that I do understand that, I think that it's it's kind of up to me and a lot of us at the core when people have those questions to be able to explain to them why we release the way we do and why it's important that we, we have to protect our dams that's, that's the number one priority. We have to protect the dams and make sure that they're structurally sound, 
get too much water in the lake, that's not going to be good for a dam, so that's why releasing has to happen. But yeah, that first four or five months, oh, I learned a lot about what the Corps did, and it just made me more excited and for the future, for the next 10, 20, 30 years, however long I'm going to be here. It's, it makes me excited to see you know, what's going to happen, and, and I get to be a part of it. In, 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 the, um, in the meteorology realm, especially uh, with TV weather, television uh, meteorology, you, you're talking about large areas, typically you're dealing with states, and I don't know if I've ever heard a, 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 a TV weather, a, a t television meteorologist talk about watersheds and the impact that the watershed is going to have. You, you know, they talk about where it's going to fall in general. And is that something that probably should be more, uh, or should probably be out there more the importance of like this is the different watershed where this potentially could fall if it lands here i think that's the number one question that we always get is right. especially during 2019 is why didn't you release before it rained or why did you release that much or whatever and the reason is is you know, when you talk about watersheds there's different sub bases mm -hmm. and you think about two sub bases water falls in this sub basin it flows left this one in this sub basin it flows right so the water goes in different directions and the idea about pre-releasing, first of all, is one thing I found out, that you start releasing a lot of water from a lake, it takes a while, even releasing yeah. significant amounts to drop that level. So you think three days from now, we expect four inches of rain. Mm -hmm. You can start releasing water from the lake and maybe get one to two feet of water out of there. But what happens if you did that, and now that four inches of water forecasted on the lake, what if it now falls just downstream from the dam? Now you've caused a significant problem because now you have four inches of water on water you've already released, so now you've caused flooding issues downstream. So that's why we always say we wait until the water hits the ground, we know where it's at, where it's going, then we forecast it, and that makes us determine how high each of the, the lakes are going to go before we do any release. And, and there's the issue with that water typically that's there already, unless you've had previous rains and you're already in a... In a, in a in a flood condition when you get more moraine, you know, in which case you're, you're trying to get that out already. Um, there's the issue of, you know, a Keystone in, in uh, 2019, we released enough water to fill it up and empty it eight times, you know? So there, there's that issue of, even if you got, even if you treated a lake like a, um, an, a, an urban um, water retention area, you know, where it's muddy all the time, except when it rains, we we'd still have had to empty, fill it up all the way to flood, you know, flood pool, surcharge pool, hold water for a certain amount of time, and then release it again. And we would have done that eight times over. And I think you put that really into a good context about how much water we had to evacuate. And again, mm -hmm. it was because the dam. You've got to protect that dam, and that much water puts that much pressure on the dam. You've got to do that release, and and protecting that dam is protecting the people downstream. Exactly. That's that's a big thing. It's like we're not protecting that dam because it's particularly special in terms of of, of some or some sacred cow for us. Archaeological, right? It's, it's, it's yes. it, I mean, it, it, they are amazing, but at the same time, that's not why. It's because if that thing goes <laughs> entire, you know, that, it's a bad situation for everybody. Yeah, and you think about you know millions of of cubic feet per second that would come down. You've got Tulsa right here, you've got Bixby. If a, a dam like Keystone would, would have failed, 
that's what you would have run into. So that's why we release. And another thing with releasing is a lot of times when you release that water, the travel time for water from one oh, yeah. place to another, a lot of times we think, oh, it'll get from here to Muskogee in 12 hours. And oh, no. Road. No, there are some places where it takes four and five days right. for water from one part of the watershed to make it into a lake. And that was another thing. That was another that? thing that I... Hardly work. <laughs> All right, thank you. That was another thing that, that I, I really realized that 2019 was just when we release that water, it doesn't just evacuate and get out of here. It takes its time to go down the Arkansas to finally get to Fort Smith. And with the Arkansas, with the Vertigris, with the Osho, yeah. all in flood stage at one time and releasing water, it's just a ton of water. And there's, where are you going to put that water? The, the Arkansas River changes immensely once you get just below Three Forks. You know, and if you're wondering where that is, it's if you go to the port of Muskogee and look north, I think it's, I don't know if I'd say directly north, but sort of north, um, you see where the, all those rivers meet and it changes. The the, the river changes. Right, right. So, um, you've been here at this severe weather event. Um, as a as a broadcaster for uh, Channel Two in the past, any any other stations? No, I think they started this after I moved over. And we just we've had people come up and they they still recognize you even though you've been out of you've been out of TV for what has it been four or five years now? Yeah, over four years now. Yeah, and what's that like seeing it from this perspective? Because this is the first time you've come with the core. This is the first time I think that we've done it that I'm aware of. Well, it, 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 it obviously is a little bit different, um, you know, because of the years that I was here with TV and, and everybody that walked by, these were potential viewers for us. And it was always great that they took the time to stop by and say hi. And, and that was always great. You know, now from what we do, it's, it's a lot more behind the scenes. I'm, I'm not on TV anymore, but I still do the same thing. These are still people that I consider that are almost like viewers for me. These are people who may live near a lake. They may live near that and flooding is a, an issue for them so on tv when i'm trying to protect them from severe weather and tornadoes i feel almost the same thing now but just in a different way that when we release to try to get them to really understand what we do why we do it and you know we're not releasing water just to make people downstream miserable that's not obviously not the case at all and anytime there's flooding it's it's terrible i mean we don't want but it's nice to see people come up and, and understand what we do and the ones who don't it's it's good to talk to them and to be able to show them what we do and why we do what we do so um, it's good it's been yeah four years since i've been able to get out here it still feels to a degree kind of like i'm in tv as i'm talking with people but they're just as passionate about what we do here at the core as as watching us on tv so. uh, it's it's amazing to me how many people from the different tv stations have come over here looking for you there was, there was somebody who just came over uh this gentleman right here was looking for you <laughs> and i said I said, oh, he's, I, he, went, he went to say hello to some old friends, and uh, he'll be back shortly. Well, you're so. in TV for 25 years, and a lot of people you meet, they, they become good friends and you work with and you're competitors with. But at the same time, you know, we're, we were all in it together. You, if you were a meteorologist at one station, yeah, they were your competitor, but they're a meteorologist just like you. They love the weather just like you. And, um, and it's, it's a mutual respect. And uh, so it's, it's good to go back and see some of these guys I haven't seen in quite a while, especially since I'm not on TV anymore. But um, you still see what they do, and I, I keep up with them here and there whenever I'm watching severe weather on TV. I get to sit on the couch a little bit more and watch it, and 
not have to be in at 2 a.m., so I don't miss that part. But um, but this was one of the, the most fun parts of TV, was getting to meet the viewers and just meet people who are out and just interested in what you're doing. What's the biggest misconception people from outside of this region have about weather? I, I mean, I, and, I, and I know, like, people automatically think Tornado Alley, right? That's that's what they call this area of the country. What, is that the biggest misconception? or what? I think the, you know, the biggest misconception I've seen people over the years is tornadoes always get the headlines. I mean, it's always tornadoes, new storm chase, all stuff. But it's those secondary things that we've pushed for years about safety. It's driving in flooded roads. It's lightning. You know, I've, lightning is, to me, one of the scariest things in a storm because you don't know where it's going to hit. We don't have the technology to know, oh, in 45 seconds, it's going to hit 100 yards from now. You don't have that. And we've seen people every year that get struck by lightning, and it comes out of nowhere. And that, to me, is people just don't respect lightning. They don't respect water. Tornadoes, yeah, they're going to say, oh, I don't want to be around one of those guys. But if it's lightning, if it's flooding, those secondary things that severe weather can produce, People seem like they don't have the respect for it that they probably need to. And that's what we push for years to try to get them. It's more than just tornadoes. Um, you know, I've, I've stopped baseball games with my son when he was young and there were storms coming in, the umpire. I think we get another inning in. And I'm like, my kid's coming off. And, and we would go to the car. And we would sit there and wait for it. And, you know, but that's, that's just what you have to do. You have to be... You have to really be aware of what's going on with, with severe weather, and you have to respect it. And yeah, it can be a nuisance at times when you're playing a game. You got to stop the game for 30 minutes. Much better to do that than for one lightning strike to hurt a bunch of people. I mean, that's so for me. That's one thing I think a lot of people really still need to work on is their secondary things with, with storms and severe weather that that can do a lot of damage too, and just to respect that a little bit more. So, tell us about what you do and how, how forecasting relates to decision-making in the Corps of Engineers, especially when it comes to water releases or it, it, in hydraulics and hydrology. Well, still as a meteorologist, I mean, I'm still looking at the weather maps, still looking at these rain events, and in my mind trying to get an idea of where I think the heaviest rains are going to fall. Okay, if it falls here, that'll affect the, the call watershed or Keystone or maybe you fall or something like that. Once that rain falls, then we're able to look and see how much rain fell on each sub-base and to be able to determine where that water is going to go. Is it going to go like for Eufaula? Is it going to go into the deep fork? Is it going to go into the North Canadian? Maybe the South Canadian? And they have different travel times. Does it happen close to the lake? Did it fall in three days travel time west out in Oklahoma City and it will take two or three days to get there? So once you figure that stuff out, then you can start forecasting and determining when all that is going to make it to the lake what that's going to do to the lake. And then whenever you get that forecast, then you can determine, do we need to do any kind of releases? And that's when you work with the water managers. Okay, here's where I'm forecasting this level to be. What do we think? Okay, well, you know, now we'll need to start releasing a certain amount to keep it at a certain level. So it's, it's really a team effort. You do a lot of individual stuff, but as you get that forecast, then it becomes a, a team effort. You talk to other team members and water managers, and you come to an agreement on, on what needs to to be done, whether we need to release water, or whether the lake can hold it. Um, so that's the, probably the number one thing, really, is I just use the meteorology before the event, wait for the event, 
see where the rain fell, and then that's what we used to forecast and determine lake levels. Can you talk about confidence intervals as it relates to forecasting in terms of the accuracy of a forecast and, and how it relates to time? Well, you know, obviously, you think about if you have, usually the closer to an event, to say if we were going to have severe weather tomorrow, the forecast for today for tomorrow's event is probably a little better than it was two days ago or three days ago or four days, because any error you have just gets magnified. There's been many days where I've seen 10 days out, we're going to have a blizzard here, and by the time that 10th day gets here, that's completely gone and it's sunny and 55 degrees. So looking at things from eight and 10 days out, you get it in your mind, but you don't, you don't just say, yep, that's going to happen, no doubt, because there's a lot of error still. And, and meteorology is a, is a tough science in that there's a lot of things at play. And if this modeling is wrong on one thing, then it gets worse farther and farther out and go to a point where it's, it's a big error. So usually anything five days and out, don't put a lot of stock in. Anything five days and closer, you start to look, oh, that's been showing up the last two days. Now we're five days out. If this shows up tomorrow, we may be on to something. So as we get closer to the event, the confidence grows in terms of it. Yeah, if you, I guess you could almost, it's, it's almost like um, a, a marksman taking a shot, you know, from 100 yards. If he's, if he's off by an inch, then once you get to 100 yards, it's magnified, you know, because it, it, that tip, and then, if, and then you have to take into account wind and, and all these other factors. And I, I take it with the forecast, you have to take into account various jet streams or, or atmospheric conditions. And, and you, you have a lot of surface analysis and a lot of surface observations. And five and six days out, the storm that may impact us is still out in the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. You don't get a lot of surface observations there. So you really don't know the exact strength of it. We have satellite, we have some radar that can touch some of those places, but you really don't know the exact strength of it till it gets onshore. We're able to look at some of the surface observations, be able to send some balloons up, and to get a better idea, a lot of times those will come out in 48 hours, they're here from California. So four and five days, it could be out in the Pacific. We don't, just don't have a lot of data to be able to, to say, okay, this, this looks like what the models are showing. Models are showing us one thing, and it may come on shore, and it's much weaker and much stronger than it looks. So that, that's a lot of times where after four and five days, really don't put a lot of stock in it till it gets within that window because it's so far out there and you have such limited observations. Yeah, I think someone once told me that uh, it's most accurate an hour before the storm. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as close as you can be, usually is. It really is. And, you know, and there's so many things that go into meteorology uh, from you know, small... You know, water droplet size to half of a continent. So you've yeah. got those different ranges of sizes. Right. And the modeling has gotten better for weather over the last 20, 30 years, but we're still not there. We're still not perfect. So there's still errors with it. You know, the forecasting's gotten better, but it's not perfect. It's not 90%. Now. It's, it's probably 70, 75%. It's getting there, but we still haven't, we still haven't nailed it. So, so when, uh, when, when we get a when you get a, a forecast and it says something to the effect of um, fifty percent chance of rain, right? And and I'm assuming it's, it's it it may play differently with when you're looking at it on on the internet versus when one of the television stations says it. Because now I was told that means there's a fifty percent chance 
that in the in the area, that broadcast area, someone will experience precipitation, or there will be precipitation somewhere in that area. Is that how it works, or how? Yeah. What's the what's the best way to to describe that? Well, usually when you hear a fifty percent chance of rain for Tulsa, so basically your idea is anywhere you stand in Tulsa, you have a five in ten chance of getting of getting rain on. And there are days when Bartlesville may have an eighty percent chance of rain, and Pallister have a twenty percent chance because all that goes to the you know more on the northern side. And that's usually what it means is if you stand in that one location, that is your chance an eight in ten chance that that rain will fall on your, your head. So and, and most people laugh at 50% chance. They're like, well, of course there's a 50%. There's a 50% chance all the time. <laughs> half chance it'll rain, half chance it won't. You know? And that's what we try to do. We try to do it in that percentage that in any one location. In, in that, that region? In that, in that area, I mean? or that. And sometimes when you see that, when you say 50% chance, you know, like for, for our viewing area here in, in eastern Oklahoma, it goes from southern Kansas to southeast Oklahoma. Okay. And, and that's a that's a long way. I mean, yeah. it's a couple hundred miles. So soap systems can affect the north and not affect the south. So a lot of times you have to split up the better chance of rain north, less south. And the same kind of thing happens with us when we're doing core work and we're mm -hmm. thinking about rain is what may rain and fall just to our north that falls into Ulagaz. It may shift. Now, now it's going to fall in grains, so it affects a totally different watershed based on small amounts of change. Have you ever stood on a stood a, a straddle the the a watershed line for where where if the water lands on one spot and lands on another? I never have. We need but, to go do that now. You, we need to go do that. We really need to find point. that location, one of those locations somewhere, and we need to stand on it <laughs> on a rainy day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, a dry day would be kind of boring for us. Wouldn't like, it? Well, if it did rain, here's what it would happen. So there's just a lot that goes into, into forecasting. And, you know, and, and to, be, uh, to be honest, I mean, that's why, you know, the TV guys, I mean, you see them all the time, obviously. And that's why forecasting is such a challenge is yeah. because there's so much that goes into it. And for us, it's the same thing. Is we can see, oh, five inches of rain is coming in three days. But two days out, now it's down to three inches. And that's where it's always changing. It's always the, the bullseyes moving around. And just a small change, a half mile or a mile of where that's at can make a huge difference in whether we should have released or not released. That's why we always wait until it hits the ground. Before it, and the forecast isn't wrong. It's just, it just may have fallen in a different watershed. So, I mean, because in that, hundred, in that area, like southern Kansas to, to Tulsa or beyond, below Tulsa, um, there's a lot of room for people that, you know, I may, I may be standing in, in one part in West Tulsa and I may say, well, I didn't get any rain. The weatherman didn't know what he's talking about, but somebody in North Tulsa may be experiencing rain. So the weatherman or weather girl, weather woman was, was not wrong. You know, the, 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 the forecast wasn't wrong. Some, someone in there experienced it. So, and that's and that's the key. I mean, even when you have ninety percent chance of rain, I mean, there are people that get three inches of rain, and five miles away they get a half inch. We see this all the time. Yeah. So that's where the challenges are, and I think that's what the next fifty years is going to be is really trying to improve that forecasting to be able to hone in on exactly where the heaviest rains are going to fall. Not only is it going to help the TV folks because they'll be able to pass it on to farmers and those, but it'll also help us in the core that we'll be able to know exactly a little bit better chance okay that rain looks like it's going to fall upstream from the lake not downstream 
and that'll be able to help us a little bit more. So there may be changes a long way, you know, a long way off, but the way it is right now, we wait for that water to hit the ground, know where it's falling, know where it's going to go, and then we forecast it based on that. I would have to think that calculating or taking into account every variable, variable that exists in forecasting, I mean, the knowns and unknowns would would be something equivalent to mapping the, the, the human genome. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it, would, it would seem to be like it would take that kind of effort to really get that, because there's just so many different variables, right? I mean, you know, and for us, I mean, the Red River's a perfect example where the western part is an extremely dry, arid area of West Texas that absorbs water extremely well. But as you work your way from Wichita Falls to Gainesville, Texas, then eventually Lake Texoma, that changes. The soil changes, everything changes, and the river itself changes. So four inches of rain out on the west side may not do much of anything because it's sand. Four inches, 50 miles east, creates a whole other problem. And that water's going to get to the lake where out in west Texas, most of that may never make the lake because it, it's absorbed. So soil type is a big thing. How much rain has occurred in the recent past, how wet the soil is, all of those things have to be taken into consideration whenever you're doing forecasting, how much of it's going to absorb, how much of it's going to evaporate back out, how much of it will make it to the lake. So it's a challenge, it's a puzzle, but it's a fun, challenging puzzle. And every time we get rains come in, it's always fun to be able to do it because it always changes a little bit from the last time that you forecast. Um, that, 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 uh, I just had a thought and it escaped me right right as you were right as uh, you were saying that um, I was like man I can't wait to say this but. <laughs> well I I think what what do you what message would you have for people out there who, who need to understand severe weather in Oklahoma what's the biggest message I think you, you kind of touched on it earlier but well, I think, you know, when you're born and raised here, I mean, people that are from Oklahoma, they've lived here their whole life, you can see that they have a respect, and they have a really high weather knowledge of severe weather. It, the people who move in from other states, you notice that usually when severe weather season, especially at first or second, when they're really nervous because they've heard all the stories. Yeah. And it's the idea of weather is one that you respect weather, but it's never anything to fear. Mm -hmm. Because when you fear, then it's in action. So tornadoes, yes, they can be extremely violent. The good news with tornadoes, the majority are extremely small. Does that help a lot of people? No, a tornado is a tornado. And yes, a small tornado can do damage. But it's understanding that the majority of tornadoes are small. That they're not these big violent ones that you see on TV all the time. That's the first thing to think about. And the second thing to think about is always plan well in advance. Don't wait until there's a tornado warning and the sirens are going off. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, now what do I do? Think about it well in advance. If I'm at home and there's a tornado headed my way, what do I do? Do I have a neighbor with a shelter? Do I have a basement? Do I have a wherever? Lightning, same thing. When you hear rumbles of thunder, take it and go inside. Don't sit there and go, I think we got another 10 minutes, another 15 minutes, because lightning can strike sometimes 10 miles away from the storm. So even if it's not raining where you're at, you can be struck by lightning. I had a friend of mine in high school who was struck by lightning. He, he got out of, uh, he came back from a track meet, and he just got out of the truck 
in a parking lot of my high school and he got struck by lightning and it wasn't even raining then. And a lot of people think, well, if it's not raining, I can't get struck by lightning. And that's a myth as well. And then also with water, I mean, understand when you're driving on a dry day, think about those areas that could see flash flooding. You know, this is a little dip here in this road. This might be an issue one day. And when it does rain and you think it could be flooding somewhere, stay away from, stay away from those areas. So if you know tornadoes, lightning safety, and flooding safety, those are the three things that's really going to, to help you to stay safe when we have severe weather. And it's always, always, always continue to run drills with your family. Maybe, maybe your kids are home from school at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You haven't made it home yet. Do they know what to do? Because we can have, we can have tornadoes at noon, 8 a.m., 8 p.m., any time of the day. So do your kids know what to do if they're home alone? Not panicking, not running outside scared. What do they do? So that's what I'd say is always run drills with just your kids, run drills with the whole family, understand it's very simple, and it's something you could do on a great day outside so that when it does happen, hopefully you never have to do it. But if you have to, you know what to do, and it's, it's second nature. We've talked about uh, the forecasting. We've talked about water on the ground. Uh, a lot of people don't understand when we talk about water on the ground, well, how do we know how much water is on the ground? Can you kind of talk about, I know that's, that's a different section, but they're so important to what, what you all do in, in, in H&H. Can you talk about those, uh, those stream gauge people and, and how we know, how they know? Yeah, first off, you know, we have gauges themselves at, at many of the, at the streams and rivers, and, and also that helps us out in the forecasting. We also use radar data. We have radar data comes across. We can also see where the heaviest rains fell on what watersheds. And we have programs that allow us to break it out sub-basin by sub-basin. Oh, this one looks like it got three quarters of an inch of rain. This one right next to it, only a half an inch. This one, two and a half inches. So we know where the heaviest rains fell from not only radar, but other things as well. And then all of our gauges, that helps us because not only do we have the rain gauges, we'll call a mesonet, which has at least one rain gauge in every county, and some counties have multiple rain gauges. So we have those observations. We look at the, all of that together, and that allows us to know, okay, here's what we think fell. We start forecasting it. Here's what we forecast at the first gauge on a river or on a stream. We compare it to what that observation is showing. Oh, we're, we're a little bit lower, we're a little bit high. So we know that slightly more water fell there than what we expected. So we bump that up to match that, and then we follow that water downstream. We wait for it to get to the next stream gauge. We find out where that is in relation to what we're forecasting. And we bump it up or down, or we say, hey, we're right on right now. So we use multiple things to be able to determine how much rain fell, how much of that rain is actually coming down the river, and hitting these streams, these stream gauges. So if we're hitting those and we're, we're on there, then we know we've got a pretty good idea of how much water is actually making it into the reservoir. And, and the U.S. Geological Survey, uh, they also have some of those gauges. And I, I guess the National Weather Services River Forecast Center, if you're in this yep. area, Arkansas Red Basin River Forecast Center. I always try to give them a plug because that's such a great, oh, it sure such is. a great site. I mean. If you're a, if you're a data nerd like that, there is all sorts of amazing information there. Probably more, and if you just take the time to 
just put in a little bit of understanding on the front end. Even somebody like myself can understand it. Um, because that it's so vital, especially with river flooding. I mean, and that's why NWS has the, uh, the that that emergency warning system for flooding. You know, when you hear the beeps go on the TV, that's yeah. that's their information that's coming across. Yeah, I'm definitely glad you said that because, of, you know, with the core of work, we're obviously more concerned with how it's going to affect the reservoirs. Yeah. But from the rain falling in a field 50 miles away, it's got to get there somehow, and it's the streams and creeks and it's rivers that bring it there. So, you know, they, uh, they do a great job at the River Forecast Center of keeping an eye on that stuff in the rivers, and we're watching it too. We're focused on what that's going to do when it makes it to our, our reservoirs, but they're, they're definitely from where it falls to where it reaches us. And yeah, them and the USGS do a great job of that, and, and we partner with them quite a bit to because they, they give us a ton of data that if we didn't have that data, it would be a missing part that we would have to try to fill in a little bit more, but they fill in some of those those spots where we definitely need a few more gauges, and uh, they really help us out. So I'm glad you gave them a plug on that. Yeah, they're, they're, that, that really is, uh, I, anybody listening, I just recommend checking out the Arkansas Red Basin River Forecast Center. Um, their their gauge their stream gauge site I mean and and there's just so much information there um, well I I think we've we've covered a lot of it and, and we're I'm gonna give you a chance to, to go back out because I keep seeing people walking by with these fan passes from 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 News on Six and they're they're looking over here and they're looking at you and they're like I think I know that guy so. What have I asked you that I shouldn't have asked you? It's always the question I end with. What should I have asked you that I that you wanted to tell everybody? Uh, you know, most of the time in TV when people, uh, they, they always ask, you know, is it the same way as what we see on TV? And many cases, yes, and in many cases, it's no. And I always bring up doing morning shows. They always ask me, how do you look like you're chipper? How do you look like you're awake? And it's like... Well, that takes a lot. It takes a lot of time to look awake, and then when you go to commercial, you're looking for that coffee cup <laughs> because you're exhausted. And, and this is the I, morning show people asking this question. The morning show people. It is. Come on, they know. It, it is. It, it's like you're smiling, and you're but inside you're like, I've only had three cups of coffee, and I've got about four more before this morning is over with. Right. So, but you know, it's. People ask me what do I miss about TV, and, and there were some great things and some great people in TV, and that's what I love about going to talk with all my friends and all that. But you know, for me, I'm in the right place now in my my season of my life, and um, you know, it's been the, it's been the perfect fit for my family and me, and and I can't say enough about you know the core and the people that I work with. It's probably the most brilliant people I've ever worked with, which is the team effort that we do here. Is something that um, I hope others see. They don't get to see it that often, but to know that we're like a big family. We really are, and we work together because what we do, I think, is really important. And uh, just like the TV folks and, and the meteorologists, it's important what they do. It's important what we do to try to keep people safe. So. And you know, I think your your boss is probably the probably the second most TV time of anybody in. In Tulsa District, I would say behind you, but I, I, so. I would say David probably. 
It's, yeah. it, he's working on his hours. You know, like pilots, they talk about how many flight hours they have. Yeah, he put, <laughs> he put in the work in 2019. We saw him on almost every day. And, you know, we couldn't ask for, for uh, better folks that are leading us. Oh, he's a, he's a great, he's a great uh, spokesman yeah. in terms of being able to deliver information. I've known, I've known Dave for years and years and years, and I've told people he's probably the smartest person that I've, I've ever known, and, and I'm just so thankful he's with us and, and uh, because he's, he's just a brilliant guy. But we have tons of really, really good people, and, and it's just a joy every day to, to work with, with the team that we're on and, and to be able to do something that's, that helps people. You know? So I'm still getting to help people just in a different way from what I did in television. Well, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, do the interview. I, I I I wasn't worried you'd say no because you're you're not you're you've got the experience at this and you're not you're not gun shy like some people when it comes to interviews, even audio interviews, right? But um, I I want to thank you, Taft, and, and uh, hopefully we get to work on some more projects together in the future. I hope so. I look forward to it. And when I heard this was, was back again after a few years of hiatus and that we were going, I jumped in. Because it's, it's a lot of fun just to get out and meet people, see people again. And we could get 5, 10, 15, 20, 500 people to understand a little bit more about what we do. And, and we've, made, we've made progress and we're helping the people to understand what we do on a daily basis. So I appreciate you having me on and, and look forward to the next time we get to do it. Outstanding. Hey, thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for Core Construction. Core Construction is a production of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Public Affairs Office. This episode of Core Construction was brought to you by Hydraulics and Hydrology of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Tulsa District. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day. And I'm just so thankful he's with us, and and uh, because he's he's just a brilliant guy. But we have tons of really really good people and, and it's just a joy every day to, to work with with the team that we're on and, and to be able to do something that's that helps people you know so i'm still getting to help people just in a different way from what i did in television well i i want to thank you for taking the time to uh, do the interview i i i, I wasn't worried you'd say no because you're you're not you're you've got the experience at this and you're not you're not gun shy like some people when it comes to interviews, even audio interviews, right? But um, I, I want to thank you, Taft, and, and uh, hopefully we get to work on some more projects together in the future. I hope so. I look forward to it. And when I heard this was, was back again after a few years of hiatus and that we were going, I jumped in because it's, it's a lot of fun just to get out and meet people, see people again. And we could get 5, 10, 15, 20, 500 people to understand a little bit more about what we do. And, and we've, made, we've made progress and we're helping the people to understand what we do on a daily basis. So I appreciate you having me on and, and look forward to the next time we get to do it. Outstanding. Hey, thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for Core Construction. Core Construction is a production of the Tulsa District U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Public Affairs Office. This episode of Core Construction was brought to you by Hydraulics and Hydrology of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Tulsa District. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day.